Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, church. I'm so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, My name is Matt Darby. I am one of the pastors here at New Beginnings, and it is my joy to welcome you and my joy to be opening and sharing uh, God's Word with you this morning. I want you to know that uh, I I am so grateful Uh, to Pastor Connor for the opportunity to share this morning. And um, I'm excited because today we are in week two of our uh, series, our sermon series that is leading us to Easter called Passion Week, The Road to the Cross. And in this sermon series, we are taking a look at this week from the time Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry all the way until his death burial and resurrection. And we're looking at this seven-day period. And listen, these were seven days that changed the course of human history. Amen? And as we look at these, we can see uh, that in all of the Gospels, in Matthew and in Mark and Luke and in John, none of the Gospels give more time, more detail uh, to this one week in the life of Christ than does the Gospel of Mark. And so that is why we will spend most of our time through this series in the book of Mark. Last week, we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and this was a critically important event in the life of Christ because Jesus coming the way he did on an unbroken cult to the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, the, coming the way he did, he was fulfilling every prophecy and promise of God from the Old Testament and presenting himself as the Messiah, as the one true king, the king who was fully in control, the king fully submitted to the will of his father and the king who has come to save us. And so it's a, there's a couple of things that I want us to keep in mind as we continue on this journey with Jesus. When he entered into Jerusalem, it was the Passover festival. We talked a little bit last week about what that meant, right? The Passover was uh, the people remembering uh, the provision and the protection that God gave them when he sent that final plague and was going to kill the firstborn sons of Egypt. But he told his people to take the blood of a lamb, uh, put it on your doorpost, and the angel would pass over them. And so as Jesus enters in, this festival is in full effect. So people are are uh, crowded. The city is crowded. Historians believe that in Jerusalem, there were some 2 million people at this time of the festival. And because the city was crowded, so was the temple. So people would come during the Passover. It would have been important for them to come to the temple and make their sacrifice and receive the atonement for their sins. So the city is packed and the temple is packed. And that is where we join with Jesus on his way in, the one true king entering and cleansing the temple. So I want you to grab your Bible, go with me to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be in verse 15, Mark 11, verse 15. 
We'll read through verse 19. As always, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can follow along with us on, uh, on the screen. <clears throat> it says this, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because of all the crowd, um, the, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. God, I am praying right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, you would illuminate your word to us, God. That you would open our eyes, open our ears, Father. Let us hear your voice. God, I believe that in your presence there is fullness of joy and there is freedom. So God, I pray that your presence would flood this place as we open your word. In Jesus' perfect name, amen. Now, I think it's very interesting as we, as we see this event of Jesus sweeping through the temple um, that it is sandwiched between a story about a fig tree. Again, remember, there's nothing that is going to happen this week outside of the sovereign will of God Almighty. Everything Jesus will face, everything he will walk through will happen under the sovereign will of God. And here we are going into the temple, but before he goes into the temple and after they leave the temple, there is this story about a fig tree. So what we see in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, is that Jesus was hungry and he came on a fig tree, but there was no fruit on the tree. There was only leaves. So Jesus curses the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat food from you again. Then he and his disciples go into the temple, which we just read. Um, and at the end of the passage, it said, Jesus and the disciples were walking by the same fig tree and they saw that it has withered from the roots. Wow. So he curses the fig tree because there was no fruit. It was only leaves. They go into the temple. As they're leaving the temple after this this very dramatic moment in the temple, they're walking by and now the fig tree has dried up and died, right? Why did Jesus curse the tree? Because he was trying to teach his disciples something very important, and that is this. The fig tree had leaves, but no fruit. It had leaves, but no fruit. It was only leaves. He cursed it because, listen, it had the appearance of fruit, it had the trappings of being a healthy and fruitful tree, but there was no fruit. This is important as we navigate with Jesus through the temple. All right, so the temple was a critically important place in the lives of the people of God. As you look back throughout history, throughout the history of God's people, you see this very clearly. In Genesis chapter 22, um, God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac, and he took, commands him to go to a very specific place. Do you remember the name of the place? Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. And he tells him to go to Mount Moriah, and there he is to sacrifice his son Isaac as an offering. But as, as Abraham goes, he's preparing the, uh, the altar, and he's preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac. What happens? An angel of the Lord stops him, and what does God provide in Isaac's place? Do you remember? 
provides a ram in the thicket. That's right. So there's a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham takes the ram and makes his sacrifice. So on that same mountain, some 900 years later, David, King David, having been given a vision for the temple, would come and buy that very spot of land from a man named Arana the Jebusite. Now David is given the vision in 2 Samuel 7, and the story of him purchasing this land is in 2 Samuel 24. It is a very interesting story and a whole sermon on its own that I don't have time to preach, so don't try to talk me into it, okay? 2 Samuel, you, we see where David purchases this spot of land where God had commanded Abraham to go to build an altar to make a sacrifice 900 years later, having been given a vision for the temple, David goes and buys that spot of land. And six years after that, David's son Solomon would begin construction on the temple where some 1,000 years before God had established where he wanted. This, this is important. This place matters. And listen, this temple that Solomon begins to build, it's a building like no other. It's a building like no other. It is unique to God's people, and it is designed by God himself. Designed by God himself. Think about that. So that every dimension, every material used, and every item allowed inside, all of it was given at God's direction. This place mattered to God. It mattered to God. And repeatedly uh, throughout the history, we see the people of God, when they would become disobedient, they would be taken captive, or when they would chase after a false god or practice a false Religion, they would be taken captive and the temple would be destroyed. Here's why this is important. Because the temple was the heart of God's people. It is where he met with them. It is where he heard their prayers. It's where he received their sacrifices and forgave their sins and blessed them. It was the heart of Israel. And when they would disobey, God would bring judgment for their sin and that judgment, that judgment would strike at the very center of God's people, which is the temple. Now, Jesus is entering into this temple, and he has come on this, play, on this day to display the need for a cleansing of the hearts of men, and he does so by coming into the heart of God's people, which is the temple. And this is why Jesus has come. He has come to make us holy. He has come to make us holy. Listen, when Jesus came, he was not concerned with the Jewish people's relationship with Rome. He was not concerned. He didn't come to try to fix their social struggles between them and Rome. He didn't come to try to fix their foreign policies or their economic issues. He wasn't concerned about their relationship with Rome. Jesus is concerned about the people's relationship with the one true God. And the issue at hand is a lack of holiness in the people of God. Jesus didn't come to restore political stability. He came to restore holiness in the people of God. And that's the work he is still about today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul is praying for the church. And he is praying that the church may abound in love for one another so that through Jesus he may establish your hearts blameless in 
holiness before our God and Father. Church, it is essential that we keep this in sight, that Jesus came not to fix every social issue, every economic issue, every political issue. Though, listen, in him, those things find their right place, don't they? In him, they find their right place. But he didn't come for those. Jesus came to restore and establish our hearts in holiness. That is what he is about every day in our relationship with him. And that is what we see him about this day in the temple. So with that in mind, here's the first thing I want you to know. Jesus reveals the corruption of the temple. He reveals the corruption of the temple. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 15. It says this, And they came to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Look, as Jesus enters the temple, he enters into uh, the outer court or what is known as the Gentile court. I have a picture that I want you to see of this. This is a kind of a model rendering of the temple. And you see this large, you see the outer walls, and you see this large courtyard on both sides of that inner court. That outer court is the Gentile court. It is some 35 acres in size. It is a huge court. And then you see those, that inner uh, rectangular uh, uh, place. That is the inner court where only the Jews were allowed to go. And then as you progress toward the tallest building there in the middle, that was the building that contained the Holy of Holies. So only the priest could go in there, and only one priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice for the people. But this large outer court, this was the Gentile court. This is where everyone entered and exited from the temple. And when Jesus comes in, this is what he comes in, and he observes everything that is going on, and listen, it appalls him. You know, Mark says it this way. He says, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. But listen, there's a lot that happens between and he enters the temple and he begins to drive them out. Right in between there is him observing what's happening. Right in between there is him seeing the corruption that is on display. He walks in and he sees this marketplace that has filled up the outer court. And in this marketplace, people are coming and going. It's loud. There's shouts of, 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 of business that is taking place. People are bringing animals. They're buying. They're selling. All of these things that are going on. And listen, this marketplace is corrupt. It's corrupt. So we talked about how this was Passover week. So people had to come in to the temple to make their sacrifice for the atonement of their sin. And they had to bring an animal. And listen, that animal was supposed to be perfect, spotless. Well, how did they gauge that? The animal had to pass inspection. The chief priest had to make sure that, that, that the animal you brought passed inspection. And if it didn't, guess what? Your only option was to purchase an animal that had been pre-approved by the priest in the temple. Those temple animals were marked up some 16 times more than what they should have been. Some 16 times more than what they should have been. Not only was that scam going on, but also, when you came into the temple, you had to pay a temple tax. Well, at that time in Rome, there were three or four different currencies from all over the world. But in the temple, 
you were only allowed to use the Jewish currency. So when you brought in an outside currency, you had to exchange that. That's what the money changers were doing. And again, there was an outrageous exchange fee. This is an absolute scam that it's going on inside the temple of God. The people of God are being exploited in the house of God. It is an absolute perversion of God's temple. The money changers, the tax collectors, the people selling sacrificial animals. And listen, the chief priest watching over and prospering from all of it. Jesus is appalled. And when he walks in, he begins to reveal the corruption of the temple. And he took control. He took control. I remember... Uh, when I was in seventh grade, and I was in junior high, which is where most seventh graders are, and uh, it was the end of the school year, coming toward the end of the school year, and uh, we had a substitute teacher that day. Has anyone ever here ever substitute taught? You have a special place in heaven. I hope you know that. <laughs> you really, really do. Um, because this substitute teacher, this sweet, sweet lady, I don't remember who she was, but in the seventh grade, when you have a substitute teacher, you just smell blood in the water. You know what I mean? And not only was she a substitute, but she was a substitute on one of the last days of school. So guess what? I was done learning. I was done reading. It didn't matter. There was no more information. I was watching the big countdown clock until I was out for the summer. And listen, this classroom, we were off the rails. We were talking we were being loud. We were paying no attention to her. We were being disrespectful. And none of us knew that she had contacted the vice principal to come and pay a visit to our classroom. Now, our vice principal was a godly man, actually a minister in town, which means he was very close to my family, named Glenn Dunaway. My mom's right here. She remembers Mr. Dunaway. Mr. Dunaway, as the vice principal, had a singular focus in most of what he did, and that was discipline. And I want to tell you, he walked well in his giftings, okay? <laughs> he was good at it. He was really, really good at it. And Mr. Dunaway comes down the hallway, opens the door to this chaotic classroom, and steps inside, and guess what happens? He took control. He took control. The party shut down immediately. And he began to call names. Mr. Darby, this way, right out in the hallway. Mr. Holder, you come with him, right out in the hallway. Mr. Smith, you just come along. You guys all right. And guess what he did in the hallway? He turned some tables. I'm going to tell you right now, my tables got turned out in the hallway of the seventh grade wing at Dangerfield Junior High. And when I went back into that classroom, I was a much different young man than when I had uh, come out. Okay? Why? Because somebody had to step in and take control. We were being disrespectful. We were being loud. And he was reminding us we were not using that room and respecting this teacher for the purpose for which she had been given. And that's what Jesus steps into. He steps into this chaotic scene and he takes control. Here's the question though. Why was he so angry? Why was Jesus so angry? Now understand, it's a righteous anger. This is not a sinful anger, which is what you and I typically walk in. This is a righteous anger. Why was he so angry? Remember I told you, this temple scene is sandwiched between the story about a fig tree. Here's why Jesus was so angry. Because the temple was like the fig tree. What do I mean? I mean the temple was nothing but leaves. It was nothing but leaves. 
Now make no mistake, it still looked like the temple. It still had the appearance of being that place God had described and established for his worship. It had all the trappings of being a healthy, thriving, spiritual institution. But beneath the show, beneath that outward appearance, there was a corruption and a disobedience. And listen, this dynamic, this facade of holiness on the outside, but sin and corruption on the inside, this is something God has waged war against throughout his relationship with his people. Isaiah 29 and 13, God says this through the prophet Isaiah, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are what? Far from me. Far from me. Jesus would quote this very verse in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 and 9, in response to being questioned by the Pharisees and the scribes. So this is a consistent issue. Old Testament to New Testament. Why? Because from the very beginning until Jesus returns, listen, our God is infinitely more concerned with the fruit than he is with the leaves. And what he sees in the temple from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and from the people is nothing more than the trappings of holiness with hearts of corruption. And Jesus reveals it. So let's just jump into the deep end of the pool together, okay? Let's examine ourselves. If you were honest, would you have to say that your life is marked by the appearance of holiness, but there is corruption and disobedience beneath the surface? Oh, we've got all the trappings of holiness, right? I've got all the appearance of a right relationship with God. But the truth is my heart is far from him. Listen, that's why he cursed the fig tree. He was teaching his disciples something very important. It's why he quoted Isaiah 29 to uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. Listen, it's why he told the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. It's why he, he forgave the woman who was caught in adultery and sent all the religious leaders away frustrated. You remember they just dropped their stones and walked away. It's why when his disciples came to him and they wanted to know who was going to be greatest in the kingdom, he taught them how to be the least. Why? Because Jesus cares very little for the outward appearance. Golly, church, if we could be captured by this, Jesus cares very little for the outward appearance. He is always more concerned with your heart, with who you truly are, and with the condition of your soul. Here's why. Because a holy, obedient heart will bear fruit. A holy, obedient heart will always be more than leaves. It will bear fruit. How do I know that? Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates both day and night. And then listen to what it says. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither, and in all that he does he prospers. He says, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. That man bears fruit. That person bears fruit. 
Jeremiah 17, verse 7 and 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water, again, that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it is, and is not anxious in the year of drought. Why? For it does not cease to bear fruit. So the psalmist David has said, the blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord, he's going to bear fruit. The prophet Jeremiah said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord because he's going to bear fruit. And then I want you to hear what Jesus says in John 15, 4 through 5. He says this, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. So David has said, it's the word. Jeremiah said, it's putting your trust in the Lord. And Jesus has said, it is abiding in him. Listen, I have gotten this flipped before and tried to play the part of the vine. I have gotten this flipped before where I convinced myself that I was going to just do enough things to have a holy life. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm the vine. You are the branches. The way you pursue holiness, live out holiness, have a life that honors me, displays my glory, declares my majesty as you abide in me, our relationship with Jesus is more than leaves. It is more than appearances. It is more than coming to church or life group. It is a transforming work of the heart. So let me ask you, are you in the vine? Are you bearing fruit that results from Jesus being the Lord of your life? Or, if you're dishonest with yourself, would you have to say, I'm the fig tree. I'm the temple. I look holy. I have all the trappings of a right relationship with God, but beneath there is disobedience. There is corruption. And listen, some of us believe that we can work a little harder, try a little harder, do enough good things, and that will make us holy. Church, let's be captured by this today. Holiness is not a work that begins on the outside and works its way in. That is not how holiness works. There is no behavior you can manage. There is no good thing you can do that from the outside will change your heart and make you holy. Holiness is a work from the inside out. It is a work that begins in that place that only the Lord God can get to. And he comes in, he transforms my heart, and that positions me to walk in holiness. Why do I tell you that? Because some of you are living off your best efforts and I am telling you, holiness is a work that starts from the inside out. Jesus said, abide in the vine. Jesus didn't say, go and bear fruit, and then I'll let you become a part of the vine. He said, abide in me, and that person will bear fruit. Jesus reveals the corruption in the temple. And listen, he alone is the one who can transform that. Amen? Now, here's the next thing I want you to see. Jesus reveals their contentment with sin. He reveals their contentment with sin. Look back at Mark chapter 11 and verse 16. And it says this, And he would not allow anyone to carry anything 
through the temple. Now, it's easy to read past that and not really know what's going on, what that means. It's, it's almost a verse that seems out of place. What, what does that mean? Here's what was happening. People were using the temple court as a shortcut from one part of the city to another, right? So they, would, they were supposed to walk around. There were roads, there were paths around the temple so that they could get to where they were going. But they would carry their merchandise, carry their possessions, and walk right through the temple. And in the process, they had completely lost sight of the fact that they were in the presence of a holy God. And they walked through casually as if it were no big deal at all. Right through that outer court, right through that Gentile court that was set aside for them to pray and know God and draw near to him. They would walk through as if it were no big deal at all. And listen, here's what Jesus sees. He sees a people having a higher regard for their personal convenience than for their personal holiness. Anybody? Anybody just wish I hadn't said that? Yes, me. God help us if we're living a life where we are more concerned about our personal convenience than we are for personal holiness. I don't want to be that man. I don't want to be that man who is more concerned about life being easy, about, about there being nothing difficult or stressful. I just want it, I want to be the man who will pursue holiness and it doesn't matter what it costs me. Jesus is revealing that they have become content with their sin. They would walk in and out of the temple carrying about their business, not giving a second thought to the fact that this is where God resides. Listen, they had forgotten Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. David is writing, and he asked this question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? What is he asking? Who gets to draw near? Who gets to come into the presence of God? Who gets to be in this place that God has set aside for his worship? And here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What is David saying? He is saying we don't just casually wander in and out of the presence of God. This is the presence of all mighty, holy God, and they had forgotten it. And because they had forgotten it, they had begun to become content with their sin. Church, could it be that we are guilty of the same thing? Could it be that you are here this morning simply out of routine or obligation or convenience? I want you to ask yourself this question. Did I come here this morning anticipating to encounter the true and living God? You don't have to answer that to me. I'm asking you to ask yourself that question. Did I come in anticipation of an encounter with the true and living God? Listen, when we don't, this is when we become content with our sin. We're more concerned with the trappings of church than we are with the heart of the matter. We become oblivious to God's presence and numb to the movement of God, callous toward the things of God and content with living lives that only serve ourselves and our needs. Listen, they had completely missed the point. They had completely missed this dwelling place of God and we do the same thing. They would bring their sacrifice and leave unchanged. Believer, listen. Listen. 
Here's what I know to be true. You cannot encounter the presence of Almighty God and leave unchanged. That just isn't how it works. When you encounter the presence of Almighty God, something happens, something changes. That sin issue you're wrestling with, it's brought to light. Why? Because darkness and light have no fellowship with one another, and God will draw that out. He wants you to deal with it. You'll become convicted over this relationship where you're walking in disobedience. You'll become convicted. There's, you'll, 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 you'll leave with a new measure of joy having been in the presence of Almighty God. How do I know that? Because His Word says that in His presence, there is fullness of joy. We cannot encounter the true and living God and leave the same. And I would dare say this morning that if you come in and out of this place and leave unchanged, you haven't worshipped in this place. And listen, that's convicting because my confession to you is I've done that very thing. I've walked in and out of this room unchanged. And I had all the trappings of worship and holiness. I don't, I don't want to live that life. I don't want to live that life. I want to draw near to the presence of God and listen, this is nothing new for the people of God. This struggle with contentment, with their sin, this, these going just going through the routine of their sacrifices and their offerings and all of this, it's nothing new for the people of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. This is verse 11. This is the, this is the first word that God gives through his prophet Isaiah. And listen to what he says in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rims and of, of uh, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. God in heaven, let it never be said of this place and this people that we worshiped in vain, but that our hearts were in pursuit of the true and living God. Amen. I don't want that to be said of my sacrifices. I don't want that to be said of the songs I sing and the prayers I pray. I don't want him to say, stop. I want it to be that fragrant offering. I don't want to become content with my sin. And this is what Jesus is doing. He reveals the corruption and he reveals their contentment with their sin. And as he does that, he begins to shift and to teach them. Here's the next thing I want you to see. Jesus reveals their true purpose. He reveals their true purpose. Look at Mark 11, verse 17. It says, and he was teaching them and saying to them. Now, don't lose sight of this. He's coming to the temple. He's observed this crooked marketplace. He sees the money changers robbing the people. He sees the animals that are priced 16 times higher than they should be. He sees them standing in the court of the Gentiles where there should be prayers offered. 
and lifted up and sacrifices made, and instead there's this chaotic, crooked marketplace where people are being taken advantage of, and in his anger he turns over the tables, he throws the seat, there's money everywhere, he's not letting anyone cross the temple. You saw that picture, a 35-acre courtyard, and it says he would not let anyone cross it. He has everyone's attention. All eyes are on him. Listen, including the chief priest, because it says as they looked, they got scared. Why? Because he commanded the room, and he began to teach them. It says he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Jesus was teaching them, and what he was teaching them was something, listen, they already knew. He was giving a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7. It says this, And of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. Now, who are the foreigners? Those are the Gentiles. Those are the non-Jews. These are people outside of the Jewish faith who have come in. He said, of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain. What did David ask? He said, who gets to ascend to the hill of the Lord and who gets to stand in his holy place? And God says, anyone who loves my name. The foreigners outside of the faith, if they love my name and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus is reminding the people of the very purpose for which the temple had been given to them. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But listen, the the Jewish people, the chief priest, they were working their schemes in such a way that the Gentile court was useless for the purpose for which it had been given. So they were actually keeping the Gentiles out by doing this. Think about it for a moment. The Gentiles could not progress past that court. So the court filled up with a marketplace where their worship, their prayers couldn't even take place And Jesus is reminding the people of their true purpose. He is reminding them that God has made them to be a people set apart for the purpose of showing the nations who God really is. That he is a holy God. That he is merciful. That he is is kind. That he is mighty. That he is loving. This is why the temple was built the way it was. So that as these Gentiles entered into that courtyard, though they could go no further, they could still, right there in plain sight and in full view, see the Holy of Holies and recognize that there is no one greater, no one higher than Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. And Jesus said, you've made it a den of robbers. Supposed to be a place of prayer, a place of dedication, given to the Lord, a place where people can come and encounter the almighty God, a place where he in in the richness of his mercy and of his grace can atone for their sins. It was meant to be set apart, a place of holiness. 
And listen, just as, just as the temple was to be holy, we see that the standard of God's people is holiness. Because the Bible says what? You be holy as what? As I am holy. This is, the, this is the last thing I want you to grab. That is this. Jesus reveals their need for purity. He reveals their need for purity. Listen, everything Jesus does this day in the temple, he does to reveal their need for purity. He reveals the corruption. He reveals the contentment with their sin. He reveals the true purpose of the temple. Why? Because he is ultimately revealing their need for holiness. He is reminding them of the holy standard of God. We just quoted that verse from Leviticus eleven forty four that Peter quotes again in 1 Peter chapter 1. You shall be holy for I am holy. That is the standard of God for the people of God. So here's the question. How do we pursue holiness? How do we pursue holiness? How do we shake off the leaves of appearance and begin to bear holy fruit? Psalm 119, 9 through 11. The psalmist says this. He asks this question. How can a young man keep his way pure? What a great question. God, that I would have asked myself that all of my life. How may I keep my way pure? I just want to tell you that in your time with the Lord, that is a great question to put in the throne room. Lord God, reveal to me how I can keep my way pure. And here's the answer. By guarding it according to your what? Your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. And let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart, and you say this with me, that I might not sin against you. God's word is our first and greatest source for walking in purity and holiness. Jesus himself said in John 14 that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he said in the very next chapter, John 15, that if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What is he saying? He is saying that there is no true display of having been transformed by the love of Jesus apart from a life lived in obedience to Jesus. I'm going to say that again. There is no display of a life being transformed, truly transformed by the love of Christ, apart from a life lived in obedience to the commands of Christ. What does that mean? That means if I tell you this morning that I love Jesus and tomorrow I act different, it means I don't love him today. Listen, that's hard to say. But what Jesus is saying is, if you love me, you are going to keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Do you see this beautiful cyclical thing that he has set up? If you love me, you'll obey. And as you obey, you'll love me more. And the more you love me, the more you'll be pressed toward holiness. And the more holy you are, the more affection you will have for me. Why? Because the closer I draw to Jesus, the more I taste and see that the Lord is good, the more sin is put out of flavor in my mouth. It just doesn't compare anymore. It just doesn't compare. Why does God's word say, taste and see that the Lord is good? Because there is a banquet, believer. 
It is the glory of God. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. I want to walk in that love of Jesus and I want to obey. And as I obey, I want to love him more. And the more I love him, the more I want to walk in holiness and purity. And the more I do that, I just want to love him even more. Why? So that I recognize that nothing is better than him. Why this, why this focus on the heart? Why this focus on the fruit of our lives rather than just the leaves? Why this desire to see inward transformation above outward appearance? Here's why. You ready? Because we are the temple of God. We are the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And listen, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So what? So glorify God in your body. Church, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been transformed by the saving work of the cross, if you have truly made Jesus the Lord of your life, then you are the temple of God. And the purpose for this temple, for you and for me, is the same as the purpose of the temple that Jesus entered into, and that is this, to declare and display the greatness and the glory of God Almighty. The purpose hasn't changed. Ravi Zacharias said this, he said, we are his temple. We do not turn in a certain direction to pray, and we, do not, we are not bound by having to go into a building so that we can commune with God. There are no unique postures and times and limitations that restrict our access to God. The Christian does not go to the temple to worship. The Christian takes the temple with him or her. Jesus lifts us beyond the building and pays the human body the highest compliment by making it his dwelling place. And listen, the place where he meets with us. And even today, he would overturn the tables of those who make it a marketplace for their own lust and greed and wealth. So here's the question. What are the tables that Jesus needs to overturn in your life? I'm telling you, this week I've walked in some conviction of sin. And the Lord has revealed some tables in my heart that need to be overturned. That he needs to come in and start throwing those tables around and reminding me that I can't have idols sitting out there. He says, I am the Lord God and I will not share my glory with another. So what are the tables in your life that he needs to come and flip over? When was the last time you prayed that prayer from Psalm 139, 23 and 24? Where, the, where he says, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Again, you see where it starts? The psalmist didn't say, search me and examine my behaviors. Search me and weigh my best efforts that everybody can see. Look at the leaves. No, he said, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous, grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. 
So what is that area? What is that area that you need to lay down? Because listen, Jesus is in pursuit of you today. He loves you. He is in pursuit of your heart. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if this is foreign and your confession would be, I've never actually rested in what Jesus has done for me. Can I tell you that today can be the day of your salvation. This can be day one in your pursuit of holiness toward a holy God. But it begins with a right relationship with Jesus. Some of you, though, your confession this morning may be that you were just in need of repentance because you've gotten content with looking the part, with the trappings of holiness, but a heart of sin. Here's what, here's what I want you to know. In God's presence, we find the redeeming answer to both of those things, right? In God's presence, we find the answer to both of those because his word says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And here's the promise we get to have. Here's why we don't have to fear praying that prayer. Search me, know me, try me. Here's why we don't have to be afraid because we have this beautiful invitation that says if we will confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is not a person in this room that doesn't need that today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship. We're going to respond. We'll be down here at the front. If you want to come and take one of us by the hand and say, I need to know Jesus for the very first time, we would be honored to journey with you. If you need to come take one of us by the hand and say, I have got to stop playing the part. I'm nothing but leaves and I want to bear holy fruit. Then we will pursue God with you together. If you just need to come and get on your knees at these steps or at this altar and just confess that and repent, knowing, listen, that he's going to be faithful to forgive you, then you do that. This altar's open for you to move however it is that God is calling you to move. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, thank you for the day. God, thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And God, thank you for the conviction of sin in my own heart. And God, I am praying right now that as we worship you would move in power in this place. We need you, so come, Lord Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship together.